Our text this morning is in Genesis chapter 34, and we will read verses from this section of Scripture in just a moment. But let's ask the Lord to bless us tonight, today, as we study His Word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come with fear and trembling any time we open the Word of God. And there are portions of Scripture, Lord, that are sensitive in nature, and yet You have preserved them for our learning and admonition. I pray that I would speak with clarity and with compassion May I not say anything that you would not have me say, Lord, but as your preacher, that I would be bold enough to say all that you would have me to say, standing, as as it were, in your stead before your people. And I realize what an awesome responsibility this is, Lord, that I'm not sufficient of myself to think anything as of myself. But the apostle of old, I would say my sufficiency is of God. And so I pray that the Holy Spirit of God, who penned these words, would he give us understanding and insight, would he grant repentance and salvation and sanctification, whatever is needed. We know that your word is sufficient to accomplish all that you've appointed for it. And we thank you in advance for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text actually begins in the previous chapter, in chapter 33, in verse 17. If you'll find your place there in Genesis Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built him an house and made booths for his cattle. And therefore the name of the place is called Succoth. And then Jacob came to Shalim, a city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. Actually, it was on the border. While it might be qualified as Canaan, it really wasn't in Canaan. Uh, he might have uh, convinced himself it was, but it was, uh, we might say, on the edge when he came from Padanaram and pitched his tent before the city, and he bought a parcel of a field where he spread his tent at the hand of the children of Hamor, Shechem's father. Now, we're introduced to Shechem in this chapter. He was very prominent in the next chapter for a hundred pieces of money. So Jacob stays here for a while, some say up to ten years, before he actually goes into Canaan. And here he builds a house, he erects a temple, and then, excuse me, an altar, not a temple, a place of sacrifice. And then we find and read of the horrible circumstance that happens in chapter 34. And Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which she bare unto Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, Shechem was named after the city, he was a prince, the Bible tells us here, saw her, he took her, lay with her, and defiled her. Incomplete obedience is like incomplete incomplete repentance. It is, well, it's incomplete, isn't it? None of us like to think that we have the whole of something and to get home from the store and find out a vital element is missing. None of us would buy a brand new car off the parking lot only to have three tires instead of four with the salesman telling us, but you have three there, surely that would be good enough. But somehow in our rationalization, in our spiritual lives, we often come just short of what God says to do. It seems logical in our mind and lives, and uh, we think that it can be excused or close enough is good enough, we often think. We are tempted to think. But anything that isn't whole is lacking, isn't it? I mean, let's just face it. That doesn't take a degree in anything to know that if it's not all there, it's something missing. Especially there are areas where this is more important in the, the spiritual realm 
where it's most important. In Genesis chapter 31, God called Jacob to go back to Bethel. There in verse 13 we read, I am the God of Bethel, where thou anointest the pillar, and where thou vowedest a vow unto me, and arise, get thee out from this land, and return unto the land of thy kindred. May I submit to you that Succoth and Shechem is not Bethel. It may be, if we were at McCullough, you may say we we're on Jefferson County line, but you could hardly say we were in Birmingham. And we can use semantics and explain things away, but Je- Jacob has not completely obeyed the Lord. You can build an altar, you can call on the name of the Lord, you can make all kinds of appearances, but, but Jacob has not wholly followed the Lord at this point, I would submit. Jacob obeyed, almost. He took his family, he left his father-in-law, he went to the edge of Canaan, we might say, to Shalem, a city of Shechem, bought a, a parcel from Hamor, a powerful king of the area, a resident there, even builds an altar. A great many of the Lord's people struggle in this very area, this area of complete obedience, clearly and completely following the word of the Lord to us. We start out, uh, they, they follow, they obey up to a point. They begin to follow from afar, though, at some point like Peter. And when you begin to lag behind where the Lord is and where the Lord is going, and where the Lord is leading, there's going to be problems. And soon, like Peter, we'll be warming ourselves by the enemy's fire And it won't be long until we deny the Lord that we ever knew Him or were connected to Him. And all kinds of situations lie in store. Warming ourselves by the world's fire. Consoling ourselves that we aren't where we used to be. Lord, I left the the nets, the fishing. I gave up my business for you. I followed you for these three years. We begin to be historians and recount what all we have done When the Holy Spirit of God is pointing His finger at the one thing that we are to do. At least we're not where we used to be, we argue. And at least we're following the Lord, kind of, sort of, aren't we? And they know they're not where they're going, they wish they should be. And they don't know that they're going to be sifted by Satan. The horrible account here in verse 34 of chapter 34 is a sad and sordid record of carelessness, of compromise, the result of taking matters into our own hands when we should do things according to the Lord's Word. There's so many things here. But it's often the case when we get off course, we get off course real bad, don't we? It may not seem so much to start with. I'm on the edge, I'm on the border, I'm almost here. Well, some people call this Canaan. But is it Bethel? Is it where we should be? The account is very clear here, and I have not read it all publicly for for various reasons. While it sucketh or Shechem, it seems that Jacob stays here, as I mentioned, for at least ten years. His only daughter, or his only daughter up to this time, Dinah, comes of age. She was not of age when they moved there, but time has passed, and now she is. Verse 
chapter 34, verse 1 tells us in simple terms that she went out to see the daughters of the land, the girls of Shechem, those who lived in that area, how they lived, what their styles were, what they did, how they lived life. That is a curious statement, isn't it? She went out to see the daughters of the land. She, no doubt, and we can surmise here, felt closed in at home in the family compound with all those brothers, 12 brothers. Can you imagine having that many brothers? I had three brothers. That was quite enough for me. I've read of Jonathan Edwards, the famous Puritan preacher, was the only son, and he had 10 sisters. He was smack dab in the middle of 10 sisters. Now, Daniel, you were the youngest and had sisters older than you. Can you imagine having 10 of them, five on either side? And all of his sisters were six feet tall. And the, old, the other preachers used to say of Jonathan's father, he has 60 foot of daughters. Can you imagine? We well, hear Dinah has 12 brothers. What an account. What an amazing thing here. She no doubt felt like she needed to get out and see the world and and that she was old enough and she'd be able to do as she pleased. All she knew was the safety of the family compound, father's guidance, her brother's protection, and she decided as so often at that, that vulnerable age that there had to be more to life than what she was experiencing. And she's right. There is a lot more to life than what she was experiencing. And she found out and experienced that there was more than she ever bargained for as she began to go out, probably unannounced, and her parents probably didn't know what she was doing. Verse 2 of chapter 34 tells us the horrible deed. A wealthy young sheik's son, Shechem, so mighty and powerful, he's named for the city or the city's named for him. For regardless, he's well-connected, named after places, and places named after him. A prince of the country saw her, took her, and uh, raped her. Later, he pledges his love for her and goes to unbelievable lengths and demands to gain her for his wife. But what he does here in verse 2 is classified in the Bible as forcible rape. There are countless questions that come to mind in these first two verses, and I can only just introduce one or two of them. I I was uh, sick part of the week, and when that happens, I was absolutely not able to do anything but lay there, and I preached this sermon a thousand times in a thousand different ways. So if it's a bit jumbled this morning, you'll see I would... I would lay there and just in my mind go over it and say, that's what the Lord's people need to hear. And then the next day I'd say, what was that? You know, that, that, that's, not, that's so off, off base, it's not even funny. Dr. Talley, you know what I'm talking about there. A preacher was talking with me this week about my preparation. And I said, well, I read the text over and over and over and over again. I read it and pray over it before I ever begin to study And often, this is a curious way, I don't know if anybody else does this, and I'm not saying this is the way it should be done, I will give the message a title before I ever prepare it. And then I go and somewhat like the thesis sentence. You know, you English teachers, you have your thesis sentence that you're trying to get across. You want them to take something home when they leave. And uh, hopefully the teacher at the end of the paper, your reader knows what the paper was about. And so that serves as that reasoning there. But often I'll go back and throw away that title 
and don't, don't use it at all. Uh, it doesn't fit what came out in the end, and I retitle it. Well, so much to be labor. That's more than you came here for today, isn't it? You say, Brother Lamb, what does that do for us? But it was, I'll be honest with you, it was very difficult to place a title on this chapter. In some Bibles, it says uh, something to the fact, if you have a, uh, a certain Bibles, it will say that the fruit of Jacob's uh, long living has come home to roost or something like that. I'm not quoting exactly. He's reaping what he's sown, years of disobedience and so forth. I don't fully agree with that, although I don't feel, feel like Jacob has fully obeyed the Lord. But for whatever it's worth, I will tell you that on the folder where this message will be filed, it says Jacob's failure at Shechem. We see here several questions, and, and they come to mind. And I, these are not exhaustive by any sense of the means, but they're just some questions come to mind. They come to my mind as the head of a household, as a, as a father. First of all, we've mentioned her daring older brothers. Where were the twelve brothers? Do you realize in this day and time in this society, it was absolutely unthinkable, unallowable, not unlike in these cultures today, for a lady to go out on a chaperone? It was not done. So where were her brothers and her father? This must have been, and I hope you know when I say something that I have reason for saying it, it must have been without their knowledge, she must have been secretive, or they certainly would not have allowed it. If you go to these countries today, in Iran and other places where this kind of culture is still lived out to some degree, that no lady is able to go unchaperoned. And a man is only allowed to talk to his mother's sisters and his first cousins that are female. If you study that culture, that's why there's often intermarriage at that level of cousins uh, in those cultures, if you'll do the research, because the laws of, of what's proper are so strict that that does not even take place. Of course, she's of another culture, and so some of those things, are, as you can see, are rescinded when the cultures cross. But why was she unchaperoned? Did they know? Certainly, they could not have known, or they would not have allowed it to happen. Did, where was her mother and father? Did, did, did she slip off without anyone knowing about it? Later, as her brother reacts in a, an unbelievable way, understandable in their own horror and revenge, though, in verse 7 we see what they do, the horrible result of their anger and ire. All too late. Verse 26 indicates that Shechem, after he defiles Dinah, brings her to his household, no doubt his harem, and then decides to want to add her and begins the negotiating process with her father for her marriage, the right of marriage and, and dowry and so forth. Uh, here's just a preview of how easy it will be and the ramifications of God's people intermarrying with the heathen that God will absolutely forbid when they go into Canaan. This is the introduction to all of that, and God will absolutely forbid it, how easy these things happen, how easy it takes place, and of God warning of his people not to marry those who are not in the faith. It will become one of his several warnings when the children of Israel, under Moses' leadership, re-enter Canaan, the land of promise. Hamar, in negotiating with Jacob, the father comes, to speak for his son. You can imagine the tenseness. You can imagine the emotion that's in that meeting when Hamar comes to negotiate with Jacob about the matter. 
and, and, and often uh, offers intermarriage and business concessions. If we marry, allow our people to intermarry, your wealth and my wealth will be mixed, will become stronger and so forth. All the world's reasonings for doing the wrong things are always very persuasive. And Hamar, as a pagan, not knowing any better, let's give him the credit. He's doing all that he can to smooth over a horrible uh, uh, situation. But what follows is an unbelievable thing. And while the Holy Spirit does not give us all the answers that we might would like of how the sons take over here and uh, almost put Jacob out of the picture. We see here from Jacob's sons in their absolute horrid behavior, they interject themselves into the negotiations. And again, questions arise. Was Jacob just so uh, numbed and so overwhelmed by the situation he was slow to react well, we do know the oldest of the sons come into the negotiation, take, hijack the meeting, and tell exactly what's going to be taking place. And they have behind it uh, a heart of revenge before Jacob could answer and take over. That he did not is amazing to us, but he didn't. They have a plan to get revenge. They agree to enter into an agreement combining commerce and matrimony between Jacob's or Israel's descendants and the people of Canaan, something which God will absolutely forbid. If he's going to forbid it 300 years from now, it's wrong now. He's absolutely against it, and Jacob, is in the, his sons, are in the wrong. If the Canaanites, uh, males would all go through the surgical rite of circumcision, then Jacob's sons agree that they can intermarry with them, although they had no intention of doing so, they had made this agreement to get revenge, not really intending to live up to their end of the compromise, which leads us to another problem. We don't enter into an agreement that we don't intend to keep, do we? This is wrong. It's wrong from every angle. There are several problems with their proposal. And I encourage you to go home and read the chapter at home, as though, even though we're not reading through verse by verse here publicly. Uh, it wasn't sanctioned by God, number one, and that's the best reason of all. If the Lord is approval is not some, on something, if His command is not there, if there's not clear-cut principle in the Scripture, how dare we do something so important, such as marry, without God's permission, without His approval, without the seal of the, of the Scriptures upon it? It is so important. There are testimonies in this room today who would gladly say amen to Brother Lamb a thousand times if we were allowed to testimony in this matter of marriage and the importance of it. This proposal was not sanctioned by God. Young people and old people alike, we don't do something that is not sanctioned by God, especially something of such vital importance. The religious right would not make them right. before. So what if the whole uh, uh, tribe of Hamar's people, all of his sons, if hundreds of them underwent this surgical procedure, it would not make them people of faith. Going through a religious right does not make you a believer. And so this is, the begin this is not unlike Emperor Constantine baptizing you know, whole groups of people, uh, whole uh, armies and groups of people to make them Christian. That does not make you a Christian. And this right of going through circumcision wouldn't, wouldn't change a thing. They were still pagan at heart. They were still unqualified candidates for Israel's daughters to marry. 
Only a work of the Spirit of God in a person's heart can change them. And this is certainly not what this is about. The Holy Spirit is not a million miles of this, this compromise, this procedure. Young people, I'd like to interject here. And, and young parents, I want you to bear with me. You know I'm preaching the truth this morning. And I'm trying to help everyone in this room. And I say it with an humble heart. Young people, beware of the willingness of a potential mate to even be willing to conform to the outward semblance of religion to gain your favor or your parents' favor. There's more to it than that. There must be a lifestyle of, uh, of and, and, and fruits of conversion, of genuine conversion before that person is a candidate for marriage. And then there must be the blessing of parents. There's so much involved here. And I wish the time would not allow me to say all that needs to be said here, but we're so far away from this in our culture today. And we're seeing whole generations of people raised in the church marrying wrongly and, and making horrible, horrible mistakes. These young men of Canaan, led by Shechem, were not guided by, by spirituality or love. They were guided by lust. And that's exactly the motivation behind it. And lust is not love. No matter if he wanted to make things right and live up to his honor, he'd already given away his honor. And I'm not saying there shouldn't be things made right and so forth, but in this matter here, this young man was motivated by lust and not by love. And there was nothing to be gained by all of this that was about to take place. And financial gain. That was the second reason. Hey, we can make a business deal out of this as well. I've known Christian parents who winked an eye at their children marrying outside of the faith because they were marrying up. They were marrying into some prestigious family. Shame, shame, shame. How horrible. No difference than this right here. But unbelievably, all the men of Shechem agree to submit to this surgical procedure and God had, that God had given to Abraham and his descendants alone. And while they were recuperating, Jacob's son came upon them and slew them all and ransacked the city in a heartless, horrible way. It was a brutal and horrendous deed. It was unauthorized by God. It was not approved of by their father, Jacob. Romans 12, verse 20, as we read this morning in the scripture reading, vengeance is... Yours, says the Lord, do what you will, however you want to. Is that what the scripture says? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay, saith the Lord. Be not overcome with evil. Would you not say that these brothers, and though humanly speaking we can understand the emotion and all the wrong that was done, are being absolutely overcome with evil? Jacob never forgot he never condoned what his sons did. If you fast forward to chapter 49, you'll see that these boys are brought to Jacob's bedside as he gives his final blessing, that all-important blessing at the end of his life. There stands his sons, which I believe is a preview of the judgment seat of Christ. And let me remind you, Church of Christ, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. No one will be exempt. Why? To give account for the deeds done in this body. What a sobering thought, this Lord's Day. And he tells them exactly how he views his son's deeds here. 
and with the men of Shechem. And he, he lays the, the blame at the feet of Simeon and Levi. You see, you have to read the whole Bible to get the whole story, don't you? If you read just a verse or just a portion of Scripture, you're not doing it justice. This book is self-interpreting, and the only way to understand it is compare Scripture with Scripture. And those who want to throw it away, at least you should read through it and get to the last amen before you give your final proof. And I, I would think that by the time you get there, you'll see that this is our parts of a whole. He comes on his deathbed and he looks to Simeon and Levi who laid the way in this horrendous brutality of this unspeakable slaughter in Genesis 49 verse 5. And listen to what Jacob says. While he is silent in our text, he is not silent here. Simeon and Levi are brethren. Well, of course they are, Jacob. They're your sons. Well, he's meeting far more than that. They are brothers in cruelty. They are cohorts in crime. Levi and Simeon are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are they in their habitations? Oh, my soul. Do you see the, the intensity of dying Jacob's last words? Oh, my soul, come, now, come not thou into their secret, unto their assembly, Mine honor be not thou united, for in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they dig down a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. I want to remind you that Jacob is speaking for the Lord here. These are not just words or the sentiments of a patriarch of a family, although they are that. But in the scripture, they have the weight of heaven behind them and the prophecy from the very throne room of God. The results of their revenge extended down generations. And that's what I want us to see once again today, that these kinds of things don't go away after the dust settles or the bodies are buried. Their consequences affected Simeon, who becomes the smallest tribe in the, the second census of Moses, Numbers chapter 26. And Simeon, who was omitted from the blessing of, of Moses in Deuteronomy 33 in verse 8. Absolutely omitted from the blessing of Moses. Later, Simeon shared territory with Judah in the giving out of the possessions in Joshua chapter 19. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. Levi was scattered, as Jacob says, throughout Canaan. And they became, though by God's, we praise him. Even when we look at such a horrible and despicable tale as this, we see God's intervening grace. Because in God's sovereign and intervening grace... And through their loyalty to God, in Exodus chapter 32, verse 26, the priestly tribe of Levi lives in the cities of refuge. They have no inheritance of their own whatsoever. They're entirely dependent upon the free will offerings of God's people. They have no land, 
no territory, no houses of their own. They live only in the cities of refuge. And as Jacob prophesies, they're scattered throughout all of Israel. Neither the descendants of Levi nor Simeon ever possessed their own designated region in the land. Over and over again, I think we've already seen this pattern pattern come to bear as we've studied these first 34 chapters of Genesis. We see the unalterable laws of the kingdom of God do come down to earth, do they not? Just as the laws of gravity, the laws of the physical universe are unalterable and true whether you agree with them or not, you can disagree with the law of gravity and you can violate it. You can freely choose to do that, but you cannot choose the consequences that will come to pass for your disagreement or your violation. Would you please remember with me, as I remind myself this Lord's Day morning, that God's spiritual laws are binding on all His subjects, all those who live on this globe that He created. Please record where you'll refer to it often. Be not deceived. If we're not to be deceived, there's a great possibility that we can be. If the scripture warns us about something, it's because we're hopelessly, vulnerably, and open to being deceived. The Bible tells us if it were possible, even the elect of God could be deceived. There are times when we are not functioning as we should, if we're going by sight instead of by faith and feeling instead of by the clear dictates of God's word. Be not deceived. God is never mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Do you not see that in Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, who concocted this plan in their habitations of cruelty? They got together over supper one night and said, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll make these men pay for it. They'll never forget. We'll wipe them away. They carried out their intents of cruelty. Jacob didn't forget it, did he? And God certainly didn't forget their deeds. We can summarize by reminding ourselves as we have throughout our study of Genesis. And I'll agree we stand on so, so, uh, on serious ground here today, don't we? But do we ever stand anywhere else when we open the Word of God? I mean, John 3.16 is serious ground, isn't it? Even the blessings, the call to prayer, the blessings we, uh, we the, the promises we claim are serious ground and are conditional, are they not? We can summarize by reminding ourselves, and please remember that Your pastor reminds himself first before he ever delivers it here. As we have throughout our study, when it comes to obeying the word of the Lord, I've already said it, but I won't repeat it. We may be free to choose our choices, but we are not free to choose the consequences of those choices. There's a way that seemeth right unto man. I, I believe with all my heart that Simeon and Levi thought they were right. Don't you think they thought they were right? 
And there's a part of you this morning who side with them, humanly speaking, but may I remind you that you are not God. And you're not the Holy Spirit. And you didn't write this book. And you didn't come up with what is right or wrong. And so you have no authority except to, to move and act in God's stead. Those things belong to the sovereign will. The secret things belong to God. His justice and the judge of all the earth who can only do that which is right. You can rest assured today that there is a God in heaven, as Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar. Isn't that right today? There is, would you say that with me? There is a God in heaven. And if there is, He's a God who sees and hears and knows all things. Nothing passes His, his knowledge Nothing is outside His reach. There's nothing He cannot do or influence. He has all possibilities and all power given to Him in heaven and in earth. And even when it looks like to our feeble minds and our skewed vision that things are not right, and they may not be, we live in a cursed earth, don't we? The, the creation is groaning and, with a, and travailing even until now. Till that day when it will be set to glorious liberty. Until then, we're bound by the laws of heaven. And the king of all the earth shall do right. Look at Jacob's rebuke of Simeon and Levi there in verses 30 and 31. We go to the end of the chapter. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, do you see who's behind the whole situation and why he so severely deals with him at his deathbed. You have troubled me to make me stink. Can you imagine? What a choice of words. Sons, you've made me stink among the inhabitants of the land. What is he saying here? It's the same reasoning that Abraham gave to, to Lot when their herdsmen we're at odds, where the Holy Spirit says the Canaanite and the Perizzite are in the land. Parents, sometimes you'll have to call your children in and say, you know, we're Christians in this neighborhood. We may be the only believers in this neighborhood, but we know the Lord. We follow Him. And you must do that which is right. You have made me distinct among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And I being few in number, they shall gather themselves together against me and slay me, and I shall be destroyed, I and my house, I and my household. You have put us in a very precarious situation. And I lay it at your charge, at your responsibility, if it happens. And they said, Humanly speaking, we, uh, we can see what, where this, they're coming from. Should he deal with our sister as with an harlot? In spite of it all, our God, the God of... The Bible often points to him in this way, doesn't it? The God of who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, if I was the Holy Spirit, and I'm not meaning to be sacrilegious at all, I probably shouldn't put it in that way. Again, humanly speaking, I don't know that I would associate the God of heaven with these earthly men. 
But the Bible does, doesn't he? Throughout the Old Testament, he is designated as the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Abraham, who was called out of pagan idolatry, the God of grace, the God who calls, the sovereign effectual calls, and Abraham will come out of, uh, out of Ur, will he not? He will forsake his idols. He will come to saving knowledge of the Lord. The God of Abraham. Oh, we see him on his worst day. You and I have our worst days, don't we? You and I are stand in much need of grace. Abraham, and then Isaac. We see Isaac fares no better. Isaac, sandwiched between two illustrious men, his father and his, his son. Isaac there, and we see him just for a while, but, but overshadowed by them both. But the Holy Spirit tells us that he's the God of Isaac, and we should study that and see why he is. Now Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? You've got to be kidding. The God of Jacob? With all those kids... With all those children doing all the things that they're doing, just look at what we read today. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob tirelessly pursues His people. Why does He do it? Would you look deep into your own experience today and ask, answer me why He has suffered long with you? Get Jacob out of the way. Leave Simeon and Levi to God. He can take care of them. What about Chris Lamb? What about you? Look to the pit from which you were dug. Look at that awful hole. Look at the mire that was on you when He called you. Out of death. Into life. What about the stinking grave clothes that were on you when you were brought into the kingdom? Loose him. Let him go. He being dead yet speaketh. He's alive. And while he does not overlook our sins, does he overlook this? Is any of this glossed over? Is any of this made to be different than what it is? While he does not overlook our sin. He rebukes. He leads us to repentance. And He restores. With that in mind, we come just to the introduction of chapter 35. We've been in such dark waters, we need to see the daylight. God said unto Jacob, Arise. His call does not change, does it? Have we heard this call before? Brother Lamb, you're repeating yourself. Because God has to, doesn't He? Arise. Was it God's will for Jacob to go to Bethel? Unmistakably so. Has God changed His mind? Not in ten years. Not in a thousand years if it takes it. Jacob, would you now arise and go to Bethel and dwell there? That word dwell means be rooted we're to abide in Christ. It has that same uh, intent. Dwell where? There. Not on the outskirts. Not on the county line. But at Bethel. 
and make there an altar unto God. Do you see how the Holy Spirit points this out? Jacob could have pointed out, well, I made an altar here. Jacob, go to Bethel and make an altar there. Yes, make an altar, but make it where I told you to make it. And make there an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. And then Jacob said unto his household and to all that were with him, put away the strange gods. He, he calls a solemn assembly. Sometimes, dads, you need to call a solemn assembly in your household and clean house. Set things in order. He calls a, a solemn assembly and to his household, and to all that were with him, unapologetically. And he commands them. He doesn't suggest, if they get around to it, that they might want to do away with their idols. What does he tell them? Put away the strange, and that intent there is once and for all. Put away the strange gods that are among you. You see how the teraphim of Rachel now becomes a snare in the whole family. That one hidden teraphim does not stay hidden, does it? And others find out about it. Well, if mother, if grandmother has an idol, why can't we? She's so sweet and kind and good. And idols are now prevalent among the children of Jacob. And they must be done with them. Cast down every idol. Cast out every snare. The scripture tells us, the song tells us, put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean. Be clean. Oh, what a word. David cries it in Psalm 31, cleanse me, O Lord, wash me, cleanse me. There must be putting away before there's cleansing. You're clean through the word that I've spoken to you. If... If, conditional, if we confess our sins, say the same thing, call them what He calls them, own up to them, make it right. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to do His part, to forgive us our sins. And to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Change your garments. Let us... Arise, church. Let us arise. Let us get off our beds of ease. Let us put aside the sin that does so easily entangle us and ensnare us. Ask the Lord to search us and try us and show us our gods and strange idols and put them away. They're about to enter into Canaan to be the people of God, to be a blessing to nations, to be a city on a hill, a light to all the world. Jacob rises to his full stature and says, we, by the grace of God, are going to do just that. Come, we that love the Lord, let our joys be known. Join in a song with sweet accord and thus surround the throne. Who'll go with us? The old song says, I have decided to follow Jesus. Notice the results there in verse 4. 
And they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods that were in their hand. That's obedience, isn't it? That takes courage. That takes action on their part. And all their earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. Verse 35 will be the last chapter. Chapter 35 will be the last chapter. And we're just beginning here. All kinds of questions arise. We're just beginning here. In the last chapter of the spiritual life of Jacob. We've studied how God saved Jacob in chapter 28. How God subdued Jacob in chapters 29 through 32. How God separated Jacob in chapter 33, verse 34. And now we're going to see God sanctifying Jacob in chapter 35. He will sanctify his people. He will present us faultless before his father's throne in glory. And we know that some things work together for good to them that love the Lord. You're Berean Christians, aren't you? What should that verse say? We know that work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. And he does not give up doing that. Rejoice in it. Even though the journey may be difficult and hard and and painful, rejoice in his disciplining. Rejoice in his chastening. Conform to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, then he also called. And whom he called, then he also justified. And whom he justified, then he also will glorify. Will, will one of Christ's sheep not be ju- glorified one day? Not the feeblest one. Not Jacob. Not a one will be lost. What shall we say then to these things? There are all kinds of things we could say. All kinds of questions we could raise. If God be for us, who can be against us? Isn't that grounds to say praise the Lord? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us? Some things. Don't you love the alls of the Bible? All things. Everything He promised. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? I'll leave Simeon and Levi and Jacob and Abraham and Isaac in the hands of the Lord. And I will cast myself... In that vast ocean of sovereign grace. And I expect it to bear me up in the final flood at the last day. And I will stand in him complete. Not based on one bit of my righteousness or anything that I could name or claim. But all the glory will be ascribed to the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Glory be to his precious name our gracious heavenly father how we love your word every part of it 
There's not one bit of it that's not holy and sacred and real and alive. It has done surgery on our hearts today. Is it not alive? It is cut open. And then, Lord, the same word has poured in the balm of hope and healing and renewal. Lord, where you've shown the spotlight of your word, you also bring in the balm of Gilead, the salve, the ointment, the oil of of healing, the oil of the Holy Spirit. Pour it into those wounds, Lord, and heal. To that one who's calling out for mercy, would you give it, Lord? To that one turning from sin just now, oh, may there be a complete repentance. To that one who is coming to faith in Christ, and you've opened their hearts and minds to see Christ as the only Savior. May they reach out in faith and take Him as Lord and Savior. I do believe. I do receive Him as Lord and Savior. I do submit myself to His control over me. To those that you have shown the flashlight, the spotlight of your your word upon an idol or idols. Oh, how precious they are. How attached. How we've justified them and hidden them. I pray, Lord, that we would have a full accounting with you just now. May we bring them out and throw them away, even as Jacob's family did before they go to Bethel. Oh, bring us to Bethel, the house of God. Oh, how we long to be there. How we need you, Lord. I need you every hour. Lord, if you don't hold us up, we'll all make shipwreck of the faith just like these boys did. But Lord, with your grace, you'll carry us all the way home, as feeble and fainting as we may be today. Would you invigorate your people? Would you revive your church? Would you give us repentance and blessing? Oh, revive us again that our hearts may rejoice in thee, we beg in Jesus' name. Amen.